Job chapter 16. Job has lost everything, or so it would seem. He's lost his children, his possessions, his health, the voice and presence of God himself. And then he has to face losing the comfort of his friends, because no longer are they seeking to comfort him, but rather to afflict him. As we noted last week, in this second cycle of speeches, the tone is harsher, the attacks are more personal, and any sensitivity to Job and his situation are long gone. We saw last Sunday that Eliphaz, probably the eldest of the three friends, perhaps even older than Job, tells Job, you are not wise, you are not innocent, you are not right. In other words, Job, you're a mess. There's no moderation in your speech. You're not a model for others. You have no place for mystery in your life, and you should listen to what I have to tell you. What I have to tell you is that you are a wicked person. It's worth noting, and I, I want you to keep this in mind as we enter into the second cycle of speeches and then we'll hit the third one, is that what his friends say, their argument has now taken a turn. They are no longer trying to get him to repent and come back to the right path. We saw that in the first cycle. They kept saying, if you come back, your life will be wonderful. They're not even doing that now. Now they are simply criticizing him and saying that there is much that is wrong in his life. As a result, Job feels alone, completely isolated. And how is he supposed to respond? How would you respond? Well, we find at least the first response is here in chapters 16 and 17, which we will look at today. Most of which, by the way, is addressed to God. The first five verses uh, to his friends, and a few verses in uh, chapter 17, but for the most part, Job is speaking to God here. As his life falls apart bit by bit, the whole range of emotions flood over him. Anger and anguish, depression, doubt, hostility, futility. But with all of these emotions going on, there was still something I think that Job could hang on to. And that is that he still had a relationship with these friends and with God. The relationship had taken a beating, but he still had that relationship. Now he's not so sure. And so there is a new theme as Job talks, a new theme that creeps into his words, and that is loneliness. And in this response, I think we see Job suffering acutely from loneliness, which we'll look at it in three parts. First of all, alienation, and then seeing through suffering, and then finally the search for intimacy. First of all, alienation. Alienation from human contact is seen as the primary cause of loneliness. When you don't have human contact, one tends to get lonely. When the speeches began, Job was speaking to men he thought would understand. But instead of accepting, instead of listening and trying to understand what he is saying, they have ignored his emotions. They have rejected his cry for help. And it's no wonder that as Job begins in this passage, he refers to them as miserable comforters. But there's more. At least in Job's thinking, God has become his enemy. And so Job has lost his friends. He has lost God. But there's still more. 
Job finds himself cut off from his community. In chapter 17, uh, Job mentions that he is now someone that his community has rejected. His alienation is complete. He is abandoned by his friends. As we will see, he believes he is being attacked by God and he is estranged from his community. And as a result, intellectually, Job is adrift. Physically, he is worn out. Socially, he is an island isolated from everyone. And spiritually, he's as good as dead. And he suffers from acute loneliness. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first five verses here in Job chapter 16. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. While he is focusing, I think, primarily on Eliphaz, who has just spoken, this, at least these verses, I think, sort of address all of them. When he uses the oxymoron, because it is an oxymoron, miserable comforters. They're supposed to comfort Job. And instead, they are adding to his affliction. And Job wants to know what motivates them to do this. What ails you that you keep on arguing? What exactly keeps you going? Why don't you know if you think I'm in the wrong and I'm a terrible person, then why don't you just sit there and be quiet? And instead, why do you keep on talking these long winded speeches? Job speculates that if he were in their place, if we could trade places, that he could make fine speeches against them. He could shake his head at them and say, I know why this has happened to you. But he says that he would show more sympathy. He would seek to encourage them, to comfort them, to bring them relief. He's waiting for consolation and he hasn't heard it yet. These miserable comforters who are supposed to be his friends. Verse 6 is sort of a transition because in verse 7 he will now address God. But if you look at verse 6, Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved. And if I refrain, it does not go away. Job sort of breaks off suddenly as, as though a thought has occurred to him and, and it, he wants to stop and, and think. You know, there, there are times when you're supposed to speak and there are times when you're supposed to be quiet. We're told this in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be silent and a time to speak. And Job says, well, if I speak, my pain is not relieved. And if I'm silent, the pain doesn't go away. So what do I do? Be quiet and suffer or speak and suffer? He really doesn't know because God has worn him out. And in verses 6 through 17, we have an awful catalog of what Job imagines that God has done to him. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have, you have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. 
Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Deep shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. Job doesn't know if he should speak or be quiet. He's just completely worn out. And the list he gives, I think, is dreadful. God has devastated him and his whole household. You have bound me. You have assailed me. And tear at me in your anger. Gnash your teeth at me. He's turned me over to evil men. He has shattered me, seized me, pierced my kidneys without pity, and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts on me. He rushes at me like a warrior. You see, in the speech we studied last week, in Eliphaz's speech, he stated that judgment falls on wicked people. And since this has happened to Job, he must be wicked. Here, Job is arguing that he is not wicked, but God has sort of put things on him that now give evidence to the entire community that he is wicked. He has given proof that Job is a wicked man. If you look at verse number 8, you have bound me, it has become a witness. And we could put parenthetically, to the community. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me to the community. That is, to the people who look at him, the evidence is clear that Job is a wicked man because these things have happened to him. God has become Job's enemy. And by the way, the word assail in verse number 9 in Hebrew is the word satam, to hate actively. Well, it sounds very much like the word and is probably related to the word satan or Satan, the adversary. Job, without realizing it, has come very close to reconstructing what we saw in chapter 1 the council in heaven, Satan and God. The problem is Job has gotten the order reversed. He believes that God has now become Satan. That God has now actively hated him and is coming against him and doing all of these different things. Job wonders if in fact the God in whom he has trusted all these years may in fact be the devil. I forget which philosopher it was beginning of the Enlightenment that said, if there is a God, he must be the devil. This is sort of what Job is saying. God, I, I thought I knew who you were, but to me, you were one who assails me. And certainly, if, if God is the one doing all of these things in this passage, uh, then we would have some serious questions. But see, unlike Job, we know that this isn't God. God has allowed Satan to do these things. And even then, we have questions as to why God would allow that. The section ends in verse number 17 with Job's assertion that in spite of all that has happened to him, yet my hands have been free of violence 
and my prayer is pure. I might remind you of the passage in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But one might ask, particularly after what we've studied thus far in Job, how he can claim that his prayer is pure. Well, I think it is because Job has spoken honestly and passionately, fervently. He has poured out his heart to God. And so there is that alienation from his friends, from his community, from his God. The second part I want to look at with regard to loneliness is seeing through suffering. Suffering and loneliness are not without compensation. Because what we find, amazingly, in verses 18 through 22, shows a clarity of thought that one would not expect from someone who is so devastated by all that has happened to him. That because of the loneliness and because of the suffering, Job has this insight that others may not have. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. The section begins with language that should remind us of Genesis chapter 4, the first murder committed in human history when Cain killed his brother Abel. And God came to Cain and asked him about his brother. And Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? And then God said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And what does the blood cry out for? I think one would assume that it is to be avenged. Job does not want his blood to be covered up by the ground. He wants his cry to be heard. Why? Because he believes he's in the right. He is an innocent victim, just as Abel was, an innocent murder victim. And he wants his cries to be heard. He wants to be avenged. Some said that the crying of the blood of the innocent victim would only end when the blood was covered or when the, the act was avenged. Okay, Job, we'll not cover up your blood. We'll not, we're going to wait until you are avenged. But who will make things right? Well, here Job comes through with clarity that is startling. Uh, he talks of a witness in heaven, an advocate on high, an intercessor who is his friend, one who will plead with him as a man pleads for a friend. Since no human, no earthly party will come to his defense, his friends certainly won't, his community has rejected him, Job asserts that his defense, his witness, his advocate, his intercessor is in heaven. And, and who, could this, who could this be? Is he thinking of some an angel or some heavenly creature? No, I believe that Job is speaking of God. Okay, okay I'm confused. <laughs> I thought God was the one who was tearing him apart. I thought God was the one who was assailing him. I thought God was the one who was Satan. Very close to being Satan. Yes, but God is a God of justice. 
And as such, Job is convinced he would make the perfect, perfect advocate. Job appeals to God's integrity, stating that God will testify to the truth of his claims. Even though the testimony that seems to be given right now in Job's life would go to the opposite direction. It's a risk on the part of Job, but it is the essence of faith. In, the book, in Sunday school, we're going through the book of Habakkuk, where we find that verse repeated over and over again in the New Testament, the just will live by faith. And we've seen that faith is perceiving and believing the truth and acting and living as though it were the truth. But what is the truth? The truth is this, that God exists and that he is who he says he is. In this moment of clarity, Job affirms first that God exists and secondly that he is who he says he is. One who is just, one who speaks the truth and one who will intercede for him as for a friend. We should mention uh, in this vein, if you look ahead to verse number three uh, of chapter 17, give me, O God, the pledge you demand, who else will put up security for me? Um, his friends won't vouch for him. In, in moral terms, they won't put up bail for him. But God will vouch for him. Because Job believes that God is who he says he is. And I think that Job understands this because of his suffering. Because of his loneliness. He is given clarity that perhaps he would not have otherwise. Verse number 22, which we read, is also another verse of transition in which Job points out with some urgency that his life is about over. And if God is going to advocate for him, uh, be his advocate, be his intercessor, defend him, be a witness, he needs to do it pretty soon because uh, Job is uh, about to go on the journey of which there is no return. He's about to die. And so God needs to do this now. Finally, we come to chapter 17 in our third point in discussing loneliness, and that is the search for intimacy. You see, spiritual vision, this insight, uh, is not enough for a person who is suffering from loneliness. Remember, it is God who said, it is not good that man should be alone. Unfortunately, most people have, I think, misunderstood that because God then created Eve, and so people say, oh, God is saying that Everyone needs to be married. Everyone needs to have a mate. And I think that is to understand that in a very, very narrow sense. As human beings, we need social connections. We need people around us. I think it is vital to human survival. And for all the spiritual insight that Job has just spoken of, he still needs contact. He needs friends. These friends aren't, aren't much of friends right now. He needs someone who will stand by him and in a real sense be intimately close to him. Be his friend. By the way, in the Philippines, um, we have many mates. We are not limited. Mate doesn't simply mean a spouse. Uh, we have schoolmates and batchmates and townmates and provincemates and officemates. Uh, I think in our culture, we want to be connected to as many people as possible. I think that's biblical. And one might think, well, Job, you've just been given this amazing insight into the fact that God will stand up for you. 
What else do you need? He needs friends. He needs social contact. It is one of the great uh, sins of the church that somehow we have denigrated the necessity of human contact. All we need is the Lord and, and, and we're fine. No, we need one another. We need human contact. And because of that, this is a very disturbing chapter. It is a very difficult chapter. Um, in spite of his clarity, in spite of this insight he's been given, Job looks forward to death. And someone might complain it doesn't make sense to have this insight and then the next moment be in despair pointing to death. In fact, one commentator says, if we prefer to think that Job achieved some sort of spiritual breakthrough in chapter 16, it clearly did not last long. Well, I would remind you that Job is in pain. He is suffering. He is grieving. He is suffering the whole or experiencing the whole range of emotions. I think it is too much for us to expect that he would be entirely logical and entirely rational all throughout. Job is, above all things, a human being. And I think it, we are doing him a disservice if we say, well, Job, why the flip-flop? I think we just probably should go home and look in the mirror and we might have the answer to that. With regard to his friends, Job seems to have given up on them. They're a lost cause. They are miserable comforters. With regard to God, where he was sort of on one track, and that was the track of anger toward God, Job now seems to be of two minds. He's still afraid of God and still has a sense that God is being unjust. On the other hand, there is now a growing sense, and we saw it in his last speech and we see it here. It will be much more uh, profound, I think, in the next speech. This growing sense that maybe not in this life, but at some point, somewhere, Job will be vindicated. God will make things right. But that moment hasn't come. Job is still in the midst of misery and anguish. And so let's read this. We won't go through it as carefully as we have chapter 16, but just try to understand or, or get a sense that emotionally he's all over the place. Uh, in terms of his audience, we're not even, it's not quite clear because in verses 3 and 4, it appears that he is addressing God. In verse 5 and verse 10, perhaps his friends. The rest of it, is he just talking to himself? It's not really clear, but this is a man who is devastated. And I think we should read it uh, in that spirit. Follow along, if you would, as I read. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore, you will not let them triumph. If a man denounces his friends for reward, the eyes of his children will fail. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent 
are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways, and those with clean hands will grow stronger. But come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. These men turn night into day. In the face of darkness, they say, light is near. If the only hope I, the home, if the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? I think Job is desperately alone and does not want to be alone. He doesn't want the intimacy of death to say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worms that will eat your flesh, my mother, my sister. What he wants is hope. What he wants is someone to stand with him so that he will not go into the grave alone. See, Job has lost the relationship with his friends, He has lost the bond with his transcendent God. He's lost his place in the community, a sense of being rooted. And only by a thread, I think, does his faith keep him together. Particularly as he suffers this loneliness. There are at least two forms of loneliness that we should make clear. The first is existential loneliness, to be cut off from all human relationships. This can be devastating, but it is not necessarily fatal. But there is the essential loneliness to be cut off from God without hope. And when this happens, life loses its meaning. Job has only a shred of faith, but this faith is enough to keep him miserable. Because remember what his wife said? Curse God. Die. Get it over with. And we've seen that the two options that most people, I think, would choose or think were viable, Job will not choose. He will not abandon his faith. He will not commit suicide. He will not do these two things. Which means he continues to suffer and suffer and suffer. Someone might come along and say, listen, just give up this whole, this belief in God. Change your religion. And then you'll have a better explanation. Or just kill yourself and get it over with. And Job will not do that. And as a result, he continues to suffer. But as we've seen, suffering has its uses. And chapter 16, that one short passage, I think is amazing because it shows us that in the midst of loneliness and suffering and devastation, we can still see the truth. There are two things that I want to speak of in closing. The first is, while we may gain insight for suffering, we are not to look for suffering. Okay? We should leave this to God. Okay? Um, I think that, in many ways, this is uh, one of the differences that I see between Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestants don't like the whole suffering thing. That's We'd rather not do that. And Catholics, I think, are much more at home with it. Uh, 
I don't think we should look for suffering, but we should understand when it comes into our lives that this is something that God has done. I remember when I was growing up uh, that different people would, would speak publicly of, of how that they went through a time of illness or, or darkness or whatever, and uh, but let's say illness at this point, and, and through this sickness they were drawn closer to God. And so remember hearing people saying, well, boy, if only I could get sick, you know. And then God could use that to draw me closer to him. And, and I remember, uh, not the specifics, but someone who did get sick. And they discovered when they were sick that they were really sick. That, you know, when you're sick, it's not a lot of fun. That somehow they imagined that you sort of left your body and all the suffering behind and just had this wonderful relationship with God. Let God bring suffering into your life when it is his time and the type of suffering that he chooses. Okay? I don't wish that on anyone, uh, but I think it has its uses. It is not to be rejected. I think we are not to look for suffering. We are to look for God. But the second thing that I would say in keeping with that is that there may be things that keep us from missing the presence of God. And here, I think, uh, those who have embraced suffering much more actively than I have, um, I would disagree with them on some level, but they have a point that when our lives get so busy and things are going well, that we may, in fact, cease to miss the presence of God. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day about getting older and, and how that as you get older, your hearing sort of uh, gets strange because you can hear someone 50 feet away perfectly, but someone who's standing right in front of you talking to you, what, what was that? And I think in many ways in our lives as Christians that the same thing may happen, that we are picking up on everything else that's going on in the world that really is not of ultimate importance and God is speaking to us and we don't hear our lives become so cluttered that we fail to hear him. Have you ever uh, gone away and then returned and then someone says to you, did you miss me? Uh, let me tell you, the appropriate answer is, no, I was too busy to miss you. Okay? That is not the right answer. That is, in fact, oftentimes what happens. And I wonder if God were to speak to each of us today and he would say, did you miss me? That we might have to say, I've been too busy to miss you. With Job's sufferings, it brings everything to a point where he, he gets understanding that he did not have previously. Job didn't ask for this. I think if given a choice, he wouldn't have asked for it. It has its benefits. I think our lives are so filled with white noise that we don't hear God. And again, I don't think the answer is for us to go out and suffer. Like, you know, go out and suffer. Uh, then you will know God. Uh, no. But I do think there is something to what we find in uh, people in church history who have chosen to eliminate certain things from their lives so that they might hear God better.
we need to ask ourselves, am I so busy that I failed to hear God and that I failed to miss him when I pull away? I get so distracted that I begin to pull away and I don't even realize it. May God's Spirit speak to our hearts today. Let's pray together. Father, it is not good for us to be alone. You made us to be in communion with one another, with fellow human beings, but also to be in communion with you. And we seem to understand what loneliness is when we miss human contact. We too easily forget what it means to experience loneliness when we miss you. There just seems to be so much going on. That we don't hear you. We have no sense of your presence. We're just far too busy. We do not ask that you would bring suffering into our lives to bring clarity of thought. But may we take to heart the idea that perhaps there are things in our lives that need to go. That there are things that clutter up our lives unnecessarily. And may we in the process be drawn closer to you. I thank you for this time that we could meet together to worship you. We pray for those who have been for some time now suffering with colds or coughs that you would touch them and restore their health. I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.